as I mentioned earlier, there you have your simple automated if-then logic, which is AI, and your machine learning systems, you have these agents, these whether they're self-learning or supervised learning agents. And for me, an ideal solution is kind of a supervised learning agent for machine learning, where you're giving it some rules and you're watching it, you're giving it some rules and you're telling it within those rules, these are the things that could change. And the more data you feed it, the more it understands these different scenarios, maybe different soil types, the piles. From Lebanon through Middle East to San Francisco, please join us for this exciting conversation with Ali Alchar. Ali talks with us about his research work, uh, transition into construction tech, and his current role in Slate Technologies. You are listening to Bricks and Bytes podcast, where we take you on a journey in construction, technology, and business. All right, let's get this episode started. Okay, Ellie, yeah, so thanks for coming on today. Uh, we're excited to have you and tell us about your bit more about uh, your journey so far in the construction industry. So could you tell us a little bit about your background and what we're specifically interested in hearing today is about how someone like you in a very traditional construction role background managed to transition into a technological or technologically based role? Sure, thank you. So yeah, I'm Ali. I'm, I'm from Lebanon. I uh, grew up in the Middle East. I uh, moved to the UAE at a younger age, and um, that's where I kind of got my introduction to construction. Even before starting to work in it, it was you know a bit, it was a nice experience to see all those towers get built, and uh, it was something that I always wanted to get involved with. So it was a very easy transition when I started working for a GC there, mm-hmm. and I did that for you know three four years. A GC, a GC, yeah, general contractor. Okay. Yeah, it was it was a great time. I learned a lot. I, I I think I think anybody coming into the construction industry should at least start at the general contractor, learn how to be like a contractor, a subcontractor, but learn how to build things first, and you know spend as much time in the field as you can at the early stage in your career. That helped me a lot, and you know the different moves I made later in my life, and we'll get into some of the research work later. But mm-hmm. I did some work on the side, which opened up an opportunity for me in California to move out to California, uh, get a master's and continue my career here, which I decided to do. And um, yeah, about uh, four or five months ago, I succeeded in my, let's say, transition to the construction technology industry. It was something that I was, you know, working hard for the last maybe three, four years on. And uh, yeah, it feels feels good to start this new chapter. So when you were, have you always wanted to work in California, in the US, or what was the what was the thought process behind it? Yeah, it was not really something I I considered or thought about. I always thought I would stay in the region. You know, I thought maybe UAE or maybe Saudi Arabia. There was a lot of construction work happening there. The thought process was I got an opportunity to do a master's here, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, not pay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, and it was just a, a easy decision. It was also the, the, the professor that brought me out here. I was interested in working on his research and um, helping him out and. It was a, a change for me that I thought I needed to do to explore different avenues of the industry. Now, looking back, I probably didn't need to do it. I probably could have done this change, you know, back home, mm-hmm. uh, but it certainly helped, you know, moving to a new place, moving somewhere where there's a lot more construction technology companies and ideas being built. Mm-hmm, sure. And we'll get onto your research paper in a little bit, but, and maybe it's part of this question as well, but how did you go from your role were you a project manager or how what was your role back in lebanon 
Uh, no, I, it was a new EE. I was a project engineer. engineer. And then I kind of started off as a field engineer and then spent most of my time in the field and then kind of slowly transitioned to a project engineer and, and a bit of scheduling and planning. Mm-hmm. I actually have a very similar story because I started back in Poland and I was working for a general contractor, also Skanska. And I've always wanted to design or build uh, skyscrapers in, in Dubai and these areas. And I got a randomly, I got a job in the UK and I went there and I've been there for the last five years. <laughs> and now you want to move to the US. <laughs> well, occasionally. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like you really can't plan it, like how your career goes. You kind of yeah. just have to have an open mind and there's a bit of hard work, persistence. And I think there's also a bit of like uh, having an open mind on different roles in different regions. Well, you can be very British like me and just stay in the same place for your whole life. <laughs> it's not a bad thing to say. <laughs> yeah, you can also learn languages behind your desk. No, behind your desk, no problem. <laughs> cool. So, how did you? Yeah, so tell us about the uh, route into the, the, the uh, technology world. Sure, sure. Uh, so, yeah, we'll, we'll get into the research later. But I was doing research on the side for the past eight years. About three years ago, I started thinking like, okay, I have these research ideas. I have a few publications, but. It's just theories. It's just a, a research paper that was published. You know, we did a couple of conferences, but I didn't really feel like, like, okay, the idea's out there and then that's it. And I wanted to really use some of the research work that I did and build something practical out of it, you know, and, and um, like something that everybody could use, a tool, not just a theory that people could build into a tool. And that's when I kind of started. I had a very, very large idea in my mind. When I say large idea, I mean like I had many ideas in my mind. I didn't know exactly what <laughs> I wanted to build. And I just started doing some research, uh, looking online, looking what's been built, what's being built, what technology exists that can be used. And slowly and slowly, those ideas started kind of minimizing into what eventually became, I call it a virtual assistant or a digital assistant. And about a year and a half ago, I kind of took off with that project thinking, okay, this is the product. I feel like I found a good solution for the problems that I'm trying to solve. And there were problems that I was experiencing in my day to day. And that's and that was the, the beauty of it is that mm. through, throughout this whole time I was working, I was doing construction projects. So I had use cases in front of me every single day. And if I had a different idea, I could just, you know, if something was maybe more design related, I could go talk to the architects or engineers that I worked with or, or the subcontractors, et cetera. And uh, I think that's, that's the nice part of, you know, being in the industry and wanting to build something for the industry is you can constantly test these different ideas with the people around you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so where did the uh, obviously your idea is heavily influenced on your experience that you you had previously and some of the research that you've done as a result of that. So, can you tell us more about the idea and the research? So I'll start on the research and develop into the idea. But uh, the research actually started back in the UAE, back when I was working in the field. I was uh, I was very frustrated with how performance was being measured. I thought it was very subjective. I saw some engineers that were. Uh, superstars that were not getting the recognition that they deserved and some that were maybe let's say not as good that were getting a lot more recognition because they know how to say the right things to the right people (laughs) which i'm sure the three of us have seen a lot Mm. Uh, it was something that didn't sit well with me and i i kept asking around and actually you know my father back then he he worked for that same company and i went straight to him like hey why is this the way it is and why is there no different approach and my father he was very he would always keep up with research and he sent me maybe 30 research papers talking about productivity metrics, how to measure it. And his argument to me was, look at all these references. None of them actually make sense or are a practical solution because 
the equation of input over output, which everyone uses for productivity, doesn't really account for the human factor. You know, like at the end of the day, we're humans. There's there's issues that we go through. We take sick days. We have external delays. We get better as we repeat the same task over and over again. And none of that is really accounted for. You know, you see some normalization happening for the data after the measurement, but I never felt that you know, that data point for performance existed. So mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, uh, a few months after that, my dad did pass away. And, you know, it was a bit of a dark time for me. And uh, I actually kept remembering that argument because I was still working. <laughs> so just thinking of that argument, I thought, you know what? Why don't I just try to build or propose an idea? And I spent the next two years coming up with different equations, trying different formats. We trialed a bunch of different equations. And at the end, I found a quadratic equation, which is mainly what I did is I took the input over output and I expanded it to account for different factors, to account for those human factors that we were talking about. And we found something that worked. And one of the you know success stories for me from that from the trial period and one of the success stories to show that this has a potential is we had a quantity surveyor, which he had a bit of a lisp. So, you know, he, people would kind of overlook that person's performance. And I knew that I, I worked very closely with that person and I knew that mm -hmm. he was very good at his job and I knew that he knew what he was doing. And he scored 128% because of the, the, the efficiency of productivity that came out from this equation was in percent form. And he had the highest score. He actually got a promotion after the trial because wow. running, running the team through that equation, we were able to show that, hey, there's somebody that's doing a lot of work that's not getting the reward for mm. And the research idea is, is not meant as this is the right approach, but I kind of wrote it as let's think differently. Let's account for us being humans rather than just input over output. So is this research or is it is this test is like available somewhere so people can take it? Yeah. Okay. It's it's on ASCE. Uh, it's called. Uh, I, I can I can share the link if that's easier. But it's uh, yeah. You can share it. My name on ASCE and you'll, you'll find we'll put it in the uh, notes as well for the show. Uh, but yeah, uh, I hope my hopes is that somebody takes this and actually keeps developing it further to maybe maybe they find a different approach or maybe find a more practical approach for measuring productivity. Mm -hmm. But obviously, that's not what I'm building with the virtual assistant. <laughs> yeah. And and how I led to the virtual assistant was I started measuring productivity and realizing that I, I started seeing gaps, you know, and, and I took this measurement as, OK, let's see why, why are there gaps? Why, why is performance being what is inhibiting people's performance? And I realized a huge, huge part of it was collaboration, people working together and collaboration, like the lack of collaboration was also a, the root cause of it was a lack of information and data. So someone would make a decision, someone would send an email without really understanding the full consequences. And then you have this long back and forth to try to explain the consequences. Like yeah. A very easy example is an owner requests a rough order of magnitude for changing the flooring. They might do that without really realizing that material has been bought. It's going to be installed in a week. Mm -hmm. There's equipment that's been rented already for this. So all these factors, all these costs are costs that somebody's going to have to pay. And having that cost data and understanding that, okay, this is the implication of me making this request. Should I keep making it? Am I comfortable with this consequence or not? I think is, is, a, is a valuable solution. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And, and so slowly the... the Measuring productivity and looking at how people worked and what inhibited people kind of got me to start thinking more and more about, you know, the gaps, the gaps in aligning expectations and communication. And that's how I led to the virtual system. Mm. And so you, you was applying something you had real world uh, knowledge from and in-depth and extensive research. And then you mentioned that it, the, the technology side that you, the idea that you had and was working on was not actually 
wasn't is this right? Is, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you said it was not related to the to the technology you're building. At first, no, it was not. <laughs> no. At first, it was it was it was a different tool, and it's it's a my I think my ideas you know joining Slate has have evolved, and mm-hmm. I saw a different perspective of what what was possible. I think at first I was kind of limiting my thought of what could be built, and then you know joining a team at Slate and realizing the other potentials, and and of course I was a one one person you know I was the one person working on this tool alone versus joining a yeah. a company where there's a lot of different resources and experts in their own specialties. Mm-hmm. So you were you were building something similar to what the company that you work for now, Slate, yeah. were building, just by pure coincidence, <laughs> you came across each other. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, um, it's it's a story that I really like to talk about because I applied to so many jobs before Slate thinking this might be it. Mm-hmm. But then when I saw the role at Slate, I saw what they were working on, it just clicked in my mind like this is it. And I think that's one of, one of the things I want to talk about for people looking to make this transition is, Please do, yeah. you know, be patient. Yeah, like like be patient with you know making the the move because now I look back and any of the other jobs I didn't get them, but if I did get them and, and moved on or, or took those jobs, I probably would not have been as happy or as fulfilled because I would still have this passion project at the end in the back of my mind that I'm working on. So I think the the best way to make the transition is pick something that you're passionate about that you want to build and learn through that. Learn like mm-hmm. I think learning technology, especially you know when you're not in college, it's it's not as easy because you have to spend a lot of your yeah. free time and you have a full-time job to balance as well and you know other priorities too. But I, I think having that idea that you want to work on, that concept, and it could be a very large, it could be a bunch of ideas. It could be things that you're interested in. It could be hardware or software. And then using that interest to educate yourself. Okay, what, mm-hmm. what language is required to build this type of software? Let me take some online free courses, educate myself, go through a coding school to, to learn that skill set. And then everything you're learning, you're kind of in your mind, you're contextualizing it to your idea. Mm-hmm. So, and that's what helped me keep the interest for three years of, you know, spending my free time, spending weekends, locked at home, studying. Strong commitment. Yeah. I really like what you said, because it, it's based on my experience. It always worked this way that you have to have something in the back of your head. If you enjoy it, thinking about it, doing research about it. And you have to grab the opportunity that comes in and hopefully what you have on your back on your head will connect with the opportunity that it's giving to you. And that's the most difficult part really to uh, like turn down the shiny things around that are coming into you, but stick with the plan that is giving you joy and fulfillment, which is in the back of, of your head. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's tricky. I believe, obviously, I'm not like super successful yet, but I believe that the the key the key is really to stick with it and kind of execute slowly. Things take time, but but they will pay. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a lot to do with uh, dopamine. I think <laughs> I say that because I was listening to a good, good podcast on dopamine earlier. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, just just and just to add to that as well, like I cannot stress as someone that has been teaching myself to program at a very basic level like having an actual project and real world application can enhance your quality of learning and education like tenfold because there'd be days where you're trying to do something and you're like doing it and you have no motivation to get it done because you can't see the end product or what what you're working towards so you, the chance your motivation is low and your chance of actually completing it and learning out of that are very also very low so yeah finding a project is a key key thing, I think. 
Absolutely. So if you can elaborate a little bit on Slate, what is the, the purpose of it? I've been going through the website. It's a very, very interesting website, actually. And what you guys say in there is that the Slate gives the digital assistant to every role, I assume it in construction, Correct. to offer overcome challenges. Correct. And another one that I liked was Slate gives situational context for decisions. Yes. So if you could elaborate a little bit more about this. There's an analogy we like to use a lot at Slate. It's that we're kind of building the Waze app for construction industry. So when you're on the Waze app, you you have you know the time that you know the time you're gonna get there. You can see how much traffic there is. If there's more traffic, it might send you on a different path. If you're willing to pay at all, it might send you on a different path. So that's kind of how Slate is working. Is where we're the project managers, the the field engineers, the scheduler, superintendents are still doing their roles, but Slate is bringing the data in from the different systems that exist today mashing it together and analyzing to find where there's potential gaps or risk areas and flagging those to the users saying, hey, you might have this RFI that is actually linked to this activity that has uh, that might require a design change and a change order. We know it's at the bottom of the list, but we believe this should be prioritized. And sometimes it's it's a bit more automated and you know more redundant task. I'll give you an easy example that like we check for weather. Nobody likes to check weather forecast every single day and check if there's activities that's impacted by that weather forecast. So Slate is doing that. That's, an, that's one of the small examples that we're checking for users is, you know, never mind checking the weather forecast. If there's high winds, we'll tell you with enough time to come up with an alternate plan, to inform your, your teams of the alternate plans. If, let's say, a simple one is high winds, for example. I like to use the example of high winds because mm-hmm. nobody really checks the weather forecast for wind. You check it for rain, for a storm. If you hear something's happening, you'll check for it. But... There's many, I, I've seen it many times where we can't move this stuff because the crane can't move or the cradle can't move because of high winds. So we'll flag that to you way in advance with enough time for you to think, okay, if we can't do this, what else can we do? Or can we just avoid the crew downtime? Or can we just you know, avoid paying the crew to show up on site and do nothing at the very least? Yeah, the, the idea is, is that, that, that situational contextual data, it's, you get, you're receiving it at the right time to act and respond on it. You're not getting it the day off the install and you have to run and, and figure out what to do. So is it, in what sort of tools uh, does Slate use to kind of predict things or to steer things in a different direction? Yeah. Is it any form of machine learning or like predefined questions? How does it work? There is machine learning system at the heart of it, but let me take it just a step back. We do have a scheduler in Slate, so we can import your schedule. We can also interact with it in Slate or you can keep interacting with it without with whatever software you're doing. You're able to import all your forms, RFIs, submittals. So we, we've built, we've able to import your ERP system, your material master, equipment master. So we built a system where you can import all this data, but also interact with it if you choose to interact with it in Slate. And at the heart of it, there is a machine learning system, but there's also simple AI rules. So it's kind of, I know one of the later questions is talking about my idea of artificial intelligence and what works for the construction industry. If you don't mind, I'll talk about it now. Go for it. Yeah. There's your simple AI, which could be an if-then statement. And then there's your more complex machine learning system that's creating what-if scenarios, that's looking at different and making its own analysis. And I think the right solution is not one or the other. It's actually the mix. And the the reason it's the mix is, is, you know, you also want to, you know, you don't want to have a crazy runtime all, all the time. And there are some activities that don't require that much intelligence. So I think finding that right mix with what does the machine learning system need to analyze and build and what can it do? And as well, and, and having that, you know, complement, which is the, the rule sets. The way I see the, the right solution is, as I said, uh, 
a mix of the two, the more complex and the more simple AI solutions. Mm -hmm. Your target, like who's your target customer to start with? And what is the key reason they would buy Slate software? I think, uh, well, right now we're targeting uh, for the Slate project management tool, we're targeting GCs, uh, subcontractors, mainly contractors. Uh, And obviously, you know, contractors that are building larger projects where there is a lot of data, where there are large teams, where things could get lost more easily. And, you know, quite honestly, people don't, don't have the time to do every single thing that needs to be done. The reason they're the target audience is because they will benefit the most from the solution. But this does not mean that the solution can benefit architects, engineers, owners. So mm. although the GCs are the main users of this, the GC, might, the you know, a project engineer might receive a notification through Slate that they would just send directly to the architect and say, hey, here's an RFI that should, for example, going back to the RFI example, here's an RFI that should be prioritized and here's why. I see, yeah. So the, the idea is we're giving them the data and then they could take the data. Like, they might not be making a decision, but they'd be able to quickly inform the decision when someone's asking for it. Mm-hmm. And obviously the hope is that you know this extends to the owner's side, to the architects, to the engineers, and it becomes a platform where they can collaborate together for improving project performance. So um, basically my understanding of Slate is that mainly for general contractors, but also people who can benefit are engineers, architects. What I'm curious about is products like that shouldn't be directed only, for example, into architect and help them within their practice to solve all of their issues in terms of communication for engineers, separate one, because all of these disciplines are slightly different and probably they have need, different needs. So what I'm trying to figure out is how, how do you see this and what was the thinking behind what you guys doing in Slate? No, and I think that makes sense. I think I think with the GCs, we're looking at it as there are more use cases. And as you said, with the architects, engineers, it's a bit more specialized. But that does not mean that later on when we're comfortable and we feel that we have a, a solution that we can now expand to a different market, which is architects, engineers, or for me, a big one as well as owners, because they are one of the largest decision makers for projects. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think of it as we're building something that can be used for others. It's just that we're putting our concentration here. And once we're comfortable and happy and say that, you know, we're happy where we can move resources to start building new specialized solutions for other and other stakeholders, uh, I'm sure that transition will happen at some point. But, you know, I think being a startup, we, we wanted to just concentrate on the market that we knew had the most to benefit from a digital assistant. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not saying that others don't benefit from it. They, they surely will. But, you know, you, you wanted to concentrate our efforts. Yeah, you have users and then you have buyers. Yeah. In any any case, how what is it? What is a like a a day in the life of a product manager at Slate look like? And hmm, I don't know if you can answer this, but did you prefer the like the on-site project management, or do you prefer? I think I know the answer, but <laughs> you prefer what you do now. Yeah, I, I mean that's actually a good question because I think you know people. Um, it's definitely different, you know, from project management. You're you're still interacting with people, and I think that's a huge part of project management. But you're interacting with people differently. It's I think uh, having the tangible versus non-tangible output is a is a huge differentiator. Obviously, mm-hmm. I think the, the the attitude in technology is more technical. So I, I, sometimes in construction, as I'm sure we're all aware, <laughs> you know, it gets a bit emotional. People people mm-hmm. like to use their loud voices sometimes. And, and they are using their ego too much. And using their ego too much. And, you know, I'm not going to lie. Like, like I'm, I don't think the technology industry is like perfect. But I think, you know, there, there's certain people that are more technical. And I, I always thought to myself, someone who's 
I'd rather sit down and work on a more difficult problem than sit down and, you know, run a massive meeting or uh, commissioning, for example. Mm, mm. Uh, so and that's what always attracted me in construction is it was the technical aspect of construction. I always thought it was, you know, beautiful how you could take these simple parts and assemble it together and you have a beautiful building or a bridge or a dam or whatever it can be. And I think actually I, I see technology a bit similar in that way that there are those building blocks. There are those algorithms, those logic tools that are the building blocks and putting them together, you have this large software. So although it might seem quite different, I actually found a lot of similarities and a lot of the skills transferred over, uh, you know, so people who are now in project management, project controls and construction in general, I, I don't think that our skills are that far. Obviously there's a, the technical skills, which you can learn. They're not, everyone who does it at some point did not know it and had to learn it. Um, and we might have to spend a bit more time because, you know, we've, we've already spent 10 years in the construct, 10 to 20 years in the construction industry, and we don't have as much free time as someone who's in university. But I don't think that it's impossible at all to learn those technical skills. And uh, I do think that we should appreciate how skills transfer over. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing I liked about Slate is that they recognize that. They, they, they thought that, yeah, we, you don't have the product manager experience, like professional experience, but you spend the time learning the technical skills and you have the soft skills that you could use here. And, um, you know, a lot of it is kind of storytelling as a product manager. <laughs> yeah. Are you doing a lot of like customer interaction as a, as a, as the product manager? I don't as much there, there's some, there, there's, you know, at Slate, we have different product managers doing different things. I've done a bit of customer engagement, but there's others who, who are more involved with customers. Mm-hmm. Maybe because of my passion for the assistant, I'm kind of trying to be full-time on that as much as possible. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But sorry, to, to just to jump back, like which one I preferred, I don't think I have a preference. I I did really enjoy my time in, in the construction industry. And I, I don't think like yes, you, you have bad days. And I think you have bad days in both roles. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no good or better or worse. I think a big part of it is is not just your job, but outside work. What do you do to to relax, to you know, be feel, feeling fulfilled? Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. We'll come to that. But. Yeah, so I wanted to pick your brains on something that you mentioned, which is uh, machine learning or AI. What is your understanding of it and how you think it works? Any thoughts on machine learning or AI in construction that you can tell us about? Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there you have your simple automated, you know, if-then logic, which could, which is AI, and your machine learning systems, you have these agents, these whether they're self-learning or supervised learning agents. And for me, an ideal solution is kind of a supervised learning agent for machine learning, where you're giving it some rules and you're watching it. Yeah, you're giving it some rules and you're telling it within those rules, these are the things that could change. Mm-hmm. And the more data you feed it, the more it understands these different scenarios, maybe different soil types, the piles are, let's say for an easy example, like pile driving. Uh, for The machine starts to learn that for different soil types, there is more time required for pile driving. There is, uh, if it rains, there's more time required to clean up, to start using the soil before it rains. Like in sand, maybe you could start two days later. In clay, you might have to wait a week. Mm-hmm. So it's these small things that, yes, we could write a million rules, but I think a machine learning system can start learning it on its own. And uh, But I do think that it has to be a guided learning. So, you know, you kind of have to have, like, I'm, I'm the, the first the first maybe 10 users will start to have this, you know, maybe yes, no. And, and this yes, no, could, could, this yes, no to the machine learning in terms of this is right or this is wrong. We'll start with us, the people working at Slate, mm. running projects through that machine learning system and teaching it. Yeah, this what if scenario makes sense or no, this one doesn't really make sense because there's this 
typical progression. For example, you're not going to cure concrete before you cast it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it, it's simple things like that. But you know, uh, at first, the, the first the, the first day the system is born, it's not going to know all these things. So you start slowly teaching it and teaching it. And we all build differently. All GCs, all contractors, subcontractors, architects sometimes design, design differently. So that's why having a system that's flexible to people's differences is important. And that's what we're thinking of GCs. GCs have different standards. For example, something we do is like upholding scheduling standards. So yeah, we have some default lists and the system is looking for some default things, but it's also flexible that each company with their own standards, we can, the system can work differently with them. So for me, that's, that's the, the biggest use case of the machine learning system is that it can adapt itself to the different projects and different mm. conditions that exist. Hmm. Something just came to my head is like when, if assuming there's a software company which develops machine learning systems for construction, yeah. and then they sell them to the contractors, to architects, to engineers, which are perfectly designed systems yeah. for their use cases. Then you have to uh, convince the architects and engineers and people to actually use them. Yes. Yeah, but this be based on the probably the less the least friction uh, less way of doing things and the most productive and most efficient uh, and most profitable yeah? yeah and you know if they prefer to choose it not to choose it then that's their own old-fashioned egoistic way probably that they create yeah yeah I, 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 like just to add on to that like yeah um you can build all these systems but they also have to be simple easy to use they have to make sense to the user mm-hmm. and i think that's where exactly. we a lot of our efforts because we can have the best system in the world but if it's very complicated and if you have to read code and you have to have all this analysis that you have to do after the machine learning system no one's going to use it i wouldn't use it myself no so on the back end yes you can build this as, as complex of a system as you can but on the front end it has to be simple to use easy to use it has to make sense to the user so those you know more traditional architects engineers contractors will look at the data and it will make sense to them and it will be hard to refute it. Mm-hmm. And that's how we've been designing, you know, all these messages that we tell the user, the assistant tells the user, it's giving them the full story. It's giving them, hey, here's the impact, here's the overall impact, here's the milestone that's impacted and here's why. And here's what you can do about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, they could, of course, they could poke holes through it. Anybody could poke holes through anything, but the idea is that they're getting a full picture and Hopefully that starts to to you know make people more open to adopting something like this. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And how have you found like the response from the market for Slate's um, technology? Has it been received well? Um, I'd say like Slate so far has been working, and you know I can't name names, but we're partnering with with uh, larger GCs, and mm-hmm. I think with these larger GCs, they they already have internally this culture of innovation. They want to build differently. They do agree that there's gaps and there's uh, ways to improve it, and you know, I, I, I came from those large projects. I worked on those billion dollar projects. I've been very lucky that I've worked on a couple of those and I've seen, you know, the chaos and it's it, a lot of it comes around organization and, you know, filtering the right data to the right people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they see the benefit of these tools because they've been, tr- a lot of them have been trying to build something similar and, you know, haven't achieved it because it's at the end of the day, like you, when you're a GC, You'll spend money on technology, but you're not, you don't want to build a startup. Mm-hmm. I think something beautiful that's happening in the industry now, and I see it a lot, is these larger GCs have an idea for innovation, and they go and actually start the company. So they they fund the company with the employees that came up with this idea. They make them in charge of that company, and they just become an investor in the company, and the, the company works in silo. So, so they can actually... Mm. 
Yeah, innovate, yeah. come up with solutions, spend, and if they want to bring outside funding, they can bring outside funding. And uh, I, I've seen a couple of companies, couple of large GCs, do it. And I think I think larger GCs looking to innovate or build something new that might be a better approach because they're not doing it under the umbrella of you know here's your limit on overhead and here's what you can do and here's how much resources you're gonna get and that's it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, cool, nice. So these G- GCs that you're working with, are these in uh, North America or they are global? I would say they're global. Um, quite, some in the UK uh, and some in the US, mainly around the UK and the US. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was just going to go like a little bit off off a of slate but um, and, and off topic, but yeah. just something that can benefit a lot of people that probably listen to this and are thinking of making like a similar switch to, to that you have, Eddie, is... Um, what what did your routine look like when you were obviously working, probably a nine to five job, yeah. trying to enjoy your weekends and evenings maybe, but also teaching yourself how to code? Yeah, yeah. How how did you how did you do how do you fit it, fit it in? I'm, I'm not gonna lie and sugarcoat it. It was very tough. You know, it was uh, it took a lot of effort because it's almost it almost becomes like two jobs. Mm-hmm. I think that the big thing that helped me was time management. I think uh, managing your time to not just study and work, but also do other things. I play football. I love to play football or soccer in the US. Mm-hmm. I love I love to play it. Um, you know, seeing friends, seeing family members. So I so the approach that I took was I had a, a list of deliverables, that milestones that I set for myself. The problems that I had to solve for my studies was I, I would always break it down into small miles, milestones because some of these courses that you take. You know, sometimes you have a, a problem to solve. It could take you two, three weeks to solve it. Mm-hmm. And you, you don't want to leave after three hours frustrated that you barely did 10% of it. Instead, you leave that you said, you know what? I did my 10% milestone. I'm very happy. So breaking it down, chunking it breaking down. Breaking it down. Yeah. So break it, So I think one piece is breaking down your deliverables, making it achievable, and then time management. So personally, I like to work in sprints and bursts. So I would have, you know, my work day. I'd give myself some time for break, exercise. I want to exercise, cook, whatever. And I would kind of batch up study time. Uh, so I, I would do it in, in different sprints. And I used the calendar, uh, Outlook, uh, Google Calendar, any any calendar system. And I would track all my time on the calendar. I would put exercise time. I would put lunches, dinners, things that mm-hmm. I have to do, even things as errands. Because when you're looking to study while you're working, you're taking away from your free time. And yeah. some of that free time could be taking the car to get washed, getting groceries, you know, it's simple things, but I think including all that stuff with my study milestones helped because then I knew, okay, these are all the things I need to do and I don't have anything else to, to worry about. And I have it set in my calendar. And the beauty of having your own calendar with yourself is you could change meetings as much as you want. You're the only stakeholder, you know, so it's, uh, it becomes easier to, and, and, and yeah, it, it helped me like taking this approach of actually seeing it on calendar helped me improve my time. This is all until you are single <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah yes yeah, so, so time blocking was a key yeah okay so i have very interesting to me question mm-hmm. it's maybe not off topic uh, back onto the topic i uh, just want to touch on the recent acquisition of slate so you acquired software design company which is which specialized in design for manufacturing and assembly what was the thinking behind it? Because you guys are focused on the project management and the general contractor. So I'm just curious about it. And yeah, you're right. Splash Modular is a, is a design for manufacturing software. And uh, Slate is currently concentrated on project management on the construction period, let's call it. 
But we do believe and we do agree that there's a lot of influence and decisions that happen at the pre-construction and the design phase that completely influence the project, probably even more than the decisions of the construction phase. And uh, acquiring Splash Modular and bringing their system and software into Slate allows us to build that connection from the early design stages. And, um, you know, we're doing some cool stuff with the design stages where we can simplify design process, uh, trying to come up with a cost estimate, a, a very rough level schedule from a couple of geometric shapes or a BIM model. And the idea was Splash would be our approach to start getting into the pre-construction world. And that, that's one approach of looking at designers, owners. You know, you, you have less GC involved at that stage, but you still have important decisions to make. And we can inform those decisions with the data that we have around the construction. And since these two systems are from the design phase to the construction phase are connected, your closeout package is going to be wholesome. So, so you know, mm. the, the approach with Splash was this gets us to the pre-construction phase and gives us a better closeout package at the end of stage. Exactly. Yeah. Every decision made during the design stage will have will drive the costs of the general contractor at some point. Yeah, and, and, and it's tough because, you know, I've worked on those design projects. I've worked with the design teams and they're always on, like, I haven't never, I've never seen a design project, which was, hey, this is a relaxed timeline. Let's lay it back. It's going to be easy. No, all of them are rushed. All of the, all of the owners want the design tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the design teams are under this pressure to deliver. Of course, deliver something that gets permitted, but also deliver something that gets permitted and is achievable, is constructible, doesn't, won't cost too much and they'll be able to make those analysis within minutes rather than days and weeks of coming up with different design scenarios, giving it back to the GC for a cost estimate and a schedule estimate, bringing it back to the owner and saying, here are the three options, here's what it costs and here's what how much time it takes. The nice thing is having you know the, the software of Splash and Slate joined together, you can start making those decisions in one meeting with a couple of clicks. Very nice, yeah. And one last question before we wrap up. So what's your biggest piece of advice for someone who's innovating in the construction tech space? I think one is pick the idea that you love. Like have an open mind on ideas and and concentrate on ideas that you're passionate about because that means you're going to spend more time on it. And two, educate yourself as much as possible. Like even now I, I got to the role that I want, I continue to educate myself. And I don't think it's something that anyone should stop at, at any time. You know, I, uh, I like to use a quote my father always taught me is you're never going to know everything. So keep teaching yourself every day. And, you know, up to his last day, he, he was he's always telling me like I'm learning something new every single day, 40 years into the industry. So that's something that I live by is like always educating, always improving yourself. Very cool. All right. So, Eddie, um, where, so uh, yeah, to, just where can people find out more about uh, you and also Slate? Sure. Uh, well, we have our website, we have our LinkedIn page and I have my LinkedIn page as well. So. People are more than welcome to join me, to link with me on LinkedIn or uh, send me an email. It's just my first name, that last name at gmail.com. And I'm always happy and excited to talk to people about construction and construction technology. As you can see, it's something I believe we're all passionate about. And oh, yeah. I, I <laughs> think it, there's a growing interest in this field. You know, there's uh, definitely there's a growing interest, not just from people in the industry, from people outside the industry as well. And I do believe that in the next decade, 20 years, the industry is going to completely change and I know we're all excited to be part of it. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Bricks and Bytes podcast. If you are enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate it. And we'll catch you in the next episode.